verses 1 through 9, and the sermon title is Life Without the Gospel. This is God's holy and inerrant word, starting in verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them there are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Before we dive into today's passage, let me take a brief moment just to talk quickly about Prep and Prayer Day. That comes up at the end of August. And if you're relatively new to Renewal, this is our annual gathering where all of our ministries, all of our volunteers come together to take time at the end of the summer to think about the upcoming ministry year. And this year, in talking with the pastors and the elders, we really want to focus on praying for our ministries. We want to take seriously, as Psalm 127.1 says, that unless the Lord builds the house, that the builders, all of us, labor in vain. And so we're going to set aside about an hour first to hear from our ministries about what they're planning for this next year, about their needs for the next year. And then we're going to spend time as a whole group praying for each one of them individually. And we wanted to open this time up to anyone in the church, anyone who would like to hear what the church is doing, get sort of that big picture view, but even more to anyone who would like to take that time to pray with us, to pray that God would empower us to serve Him in ways that we can't on our own. Really good time to pray together. Uh, as God's people afterward, there's lunch and time to fellowship. So if you would like to serve in the church in this way, being involved in prayer with your brothers and sisters, you can see me after the service. You can see Betty. You can see Pastor Dan. You can go online, use that contact email just to let us know that you're coming. That way we'll be able to make sure you have a handout ready for you, and we'll also order lunch for you. So again, that's Saturday, August 26th. That meets at Sacred Heart up in the mansion on the hill starting at 10 a.m., Turning to our passage for today, let me just start by saying this is a really hard letter that we're studying. And let me speak personally here for just a minute. I did not realize how hard it is until we start going through it more in depth. And you start realizing that this is a letter of warnings, that, that Paul just keeps going over and over and over the same things again because they're so important, but they're warnings that are really hard to hear because he's addressing things as dangerous that we just take for granted, things that we think are normal. And so he's pointing out how easy it is to drift from the gospel, how many influences there are out there in the world that will invite us 
to drift from the gospel. And because he references things from Israel's distant past, as well as Timothy's present moment, he's making the case that what he's talking about is universal. That this danger of drifting has always been true for God's people. And he expects us then to see ourselves either as those who have drifted already or at least as those who can be tempted to drift, and that's hard to hear. <laughs> Frankly, it's offensive. It's offensive to think that well-intentioned people in Israel's day, in Timothy's day, our day, you and I, well-intentioned people could drift from the gospel and not be aware of it. That's offensive. It's easily dismissed. It's easy not to take Paul too seriously. It's easy to think, well, sure, I mean, I guess that has to be true somewhere, someplace, that's not true of me. It's not true of my friends. And so this is a hard letter to read because both at once we can tend to be offended at the suggestion that we need to have this warning while at the same time we can be inclined to dismiss it. Those two names in verse 8, Jonas and Jombers, we'll talk more about them later, but they refer us back to the time when Moses confronted Pharaoh with God's words. God told Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh ignored Moses, ignored God's words, not once, not twice, but at least ten times, ten, eleven times. Ten times he didn't see a need to pay attention, but he thought instead that he knew enough, that he understood life well enough to chart his own course. And you read that back in Exodus, and you realize it's just hard to hear the voice of God hard to hear God when he breaks into our worlds. It feels intrusive. It feels unnecessary. Most of the time, we feel like we already know how to live. We feel like we're doing a semi-decent job at it, and so we tend not to hear what God is trying to say to us. It's a very hard book to read. It's also heartbreaking. You go back into the Old Testament, you read Exodus chapters 5 through 12, and it's heartbreaking to realize how kind and gracious this God is who's being rejected. He is absolutely determined that he's going to rescue his people from Egypt. He is going to do that. But he's also really trying to open up this space to give Pharaoh and the Egyptians every opportunity to work with him, to not work against him, and he does that by warning them. And it's with that background in mind that Paul is telling Timothy, telling us, to take God's warning seriously when he tells us what the world is really like. When he tells us in our passage today three things that we'll look at. First, that God is sending his gospel into this world to people who are really bad. Second, he's warning us that there's always going to be people in this world who will oppose this gospel. And third, he tells us how you can know if you're vulnerable to that anti-gospel influence. So let's dive in. First, God sends his gospel to people, to you and me, people who don't just need a little help, but people who are really bad. And he sends it into a world that's getting worse, in part because we live in the last days. Verse 1, understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. And as you read through Scripture, you learn that from God's perspective, we live in an era defined as the last days because they're the last days of evil in the universe. They're the last days before God finishes his plan 
to restore the universe. Ever since the Garden of Eden, God has announced that he's going to rescue and restore the creation that he made from the powers of darkness. And we learn that what Jesus did on the cross was to defeat those powers so that they no longer have ultimate power over individuals, they no longer have ultimate control over the course of human history. But instead, as Jesus announced to his disciples after his resurrection, he now has all authority over the outcome of everything that happens in creation. And because he has all authority, right now he rules over everything in such a way as to bring all of God's sons and daughters into the new restored creation with him. And so you and I live right now in the last days, the last days of evil's presence in the universe. We live in that period of time between Jesus' first and second comings. And it's a period of time, Scripture tells us, where evil tries to do as much damage as possible to God's world, basically out of spite. Evil tries to hurt him by hurting what he loves. And so it's a time that is not marked by progress, time that is not getting better and better. If you recall your Philosophy 101 class, that was Hegel's idea. That the world as a whole is what? It's, it's in this process, this process of development that happens through conflict. That as different ideas, different movements come and collide, that what comes out of that collision, if you take enough time if, over the long term, what comes out of that is moving better in, in a way that's better and better. And therefore change, any kind of change, is by definition better because ultimately it leads to progress and development. Those ideas are still present in the Western world, despite all of the examples of ongoing human tragedies, despite the number of global wars that we've had, mass genocides, pervasive racism, worsening economic injustices. The list goes, just goes on of all the evidence that says we are not getting better. A list that Scripture makes sense out of by saying in places like this one, but that list is the product of living in the last days. That what we see all around us is the product of evil and the, pro and the powers of evil holding nothing back in their last gasp because they know that their influence is just about over. It's a little bit like living in a country that gets invaded by an army, an army that then gets defeated and the army knows that it's lost and then it reverts to this scorched earth policy to destroy the country that it invaded. God is trying to help us understand in passages like this that that's the reality of the days that we live in. And so you and I should expect that these are simply, verse 1, times of difficulty. It's kind of understated there. But that's the true nature of our world, that it's bad, and if anything, it's getting worse while we wait for Jesus to come again. So if you want to live well during these days, you can't afford to forget that. And you can't afford to put your hope into anything that says, on our own, human beings have what it takes to fix everything that's wrong with humanity. Now, that doesn't mean we don't try to bring change or to fight for justice. We don't just let evil be as bad as evil can be. But we do so. We enter into those battles knowing that we don't have the power to address the root of human evil. And so we can do what? We can address the symptoms of it, 
but not the source of it. We can bring relief. We can lobby for change, but we cannot eradicate it because it'll always pop up somewhere else in a different form. Why is that? Because as Paul goes on, the problem is not external to us. The problem comes from inside of us. As much as the powers of darkness are letting loose during this time, that letting loose then riles up the darkness that's already at home within us. And so the evil inside of us gets ramped up rather than tamped down. And Paul goes on then, verses 2 to 5, with a long list of traits of what people are like in the last days. It's really easy to miss there what he's doing. He's just talked about how there will come times of difficulty in these last days, or as another translation will put it, these will be terrible days. And so with that setup, you kind of expect him to call out terrible things, to say that there will be things like genocide, ethnic cleansings, racism, frequent mass shootings, murder, torture, sex trafficking, and all the things that turn your stomach. And he doesn't say any of that. Instead, he says, verse 2, that people will be lovers of self. And compared with what we hear on a daily basis about what's happening in our world, that just seems really weak, lovers of self. What, you think, what, what's Paul doing there? He's focusing our attention not on the individual particular expressions of evil, not the expressions that the difficulties take in the last days, not on the exact ways that our ugliness to each other comes out. He's focusing instead on the source of it, on what's happening inside of people that then gets expressed in all of those headline news kind of ways. Why is he doing that? It's because we need to see that the seeds of all those things are inside of each of us. We need to see that you and I are not exempt from this critique. See, it's easy. When you hear something or, or see someone do something really bad, it's easy to think, what's wrong with them? Why would they do something like that? How could they do that? And when you label someone as them, as those people over there, you put yourself in a different category from them. Category that's at least a little better than them. And so by going below the surface, by targeting the underlying issues below the horrors, the issues that are responsible for what we read and hear about, God is helping us see that he's talking about you and he's talking about me. That yes, we might be the people of God, but only because of his kindness, not because we're better than anyone else. And so you have to read this list, I have to read this list, and think about these things as the seed, the root, the underlying trait that absolutely would flower the same way as anyone else's. have to read this list knowing that you and I are capable of doing anything that anyone else ever has. Because a lover of self means that I come into this world obsessed with myself, that I think all the time about what would be best for me, that I'm consumed with discounting anyone else's importance when, it comes, when it's compared to me, so that I'll do whatever it takes to have what I want, regardless of what I have to do to someone else to get it. That's God's evaluation of who I am apart from Him. 
And if that's the case, then yes, given the right circumstances, the right pressure, the right opportunity, I would do just as much evil as anyone else ever has. I would do every single one of the things that gets reported in the news. And that's hard to hear. Why? Because I think I'm better than that. I don't think that that really describes me, that it really applies to me. Okay, I might not be perfect, but I think I'm not that bad that I would be responsible for the difficulty of these last days. And if that doesn't apply to me, it probably doesn't apply to my friends either. Otherwise, I wouldn't be friends with them. Do you see what makes this book hard to hear? It's because I don't agree with God. I don't agree that this is the fundamental truth of the human condition apart from Him. Because I don't agree with Him. I don't see it in myself. I don't see it in my friends. And that means I don't really grasp what He's offering to me or to them in the gospel. I don't see how good that is because I don't agree with this. And that means I don't appreciate him all that much. I don't find a lot of love bubbling up inside of me for him and what he's done. And God is so gracious. He goes, I know that. And that's why this book is here. Because, Bill, if you're going to get on board with what I'm doing, both in your life and in this world, you need to know the truth about yourself and about this world. And you need to let that truth sink in more than it has already. And so God doesn't just give us one little trait and then move on. He gives trait after trait after trait after trait. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, meaning they're greedy, that they never have enough, proud, arrogant, look down on others because of what they've accomplished and make sure that everyone knows what they've accomplished. Abusive. They use their words to hurt people, to slander God, or both, disobedient to their parents. They reject authority over themselves in its earliest stage, which then sets the course for their lives of how they engage authorities and ultimately how they respond to God. Ungrateful, not thankful, not thankful to God or others because they think they deserve everything they have, that they're responsible for giving it to themselves, unholy, they reject sacred norms. Heartless, without love, no concern for others. Unappeasable, refuse to forgive or to reconcile. Slanderous, run other people down, damage their reputations. Without self-control, they lack all restraint. The response they have to temptation is to just give in brutal. They're like an animal, uncivilized, not loving good, no interest in virtue, not concerned for the public welfare, treacherous. They're traitors, disloyal to anything they've committed themselves to, reckless, hot-headed, impulsive in a way that's destructive, swollen with conceit, think way too highly of themselves. 
lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They're consumed with feeling good rather than with what is good. And to make sure that we don't think that God is talking about those bad people out there, he finishes the list by saying that part of what characterizes life in the last days are people who have the appearance of godliness but denying its power. That people will look good. We'll put on a show when they need to. We'll look religious when they're around religious people in religious settings. That they'll come to church, to CG, to youth group, and act one way. And then as soon as they leave, they'll live a completely different life. They'll look good but have no moral depth, no power to be moral. They don't experience God, don't cry out to Him don't experience his power in their lives, changing them, reshaping them, empowering them to live a life that he approves of. Instead, they lean on other things. They have the appearance of a life that's godly, but has no connection to God, no experience of God. That's what people are like. And in the last days, all of that individualism, materialism, hedonism, all of that will be on full display. And that's really hard to hear. Not that we would express all of those things at any one time, but that that's the summary assessment of our lives as a whole. That's hard to hear, but it's also, there's also a danger in hearing it, and that danger will run in two different directions. First, the danger for some of us is that we will overhear this, the danger for some of us with soft consciences is that we'll see all of those things and we'll forget that that's what Jesus has saved us from. And we'll forget that he's in the process right now of changing us so that those internal traits are no longer what is most ultimately true of us, no longer controlling our lives, but that now we do rely on the power of God to produce real godliness in us, not just an appearance of it. That's one danger that some of us with soft consciences would overhear what God is saying and forget that darkness is no longer the most ultimate reality about us. The other danger, however, is that some of us would underhear it. That we would read that list and shrug our shoulders and say, that's just the way the world is. <laughs> yeah, it's not great, but it's not really bad, you know, get used to it, it's kind of unpleasant. And we won't see that those internal traits are the real descriptions of evil from God's perspective. And that if left untouched, they will express themselves in some way at some point. In other words, some of us can read this and think, that has nothing to do with me. So how do you know then how to hear it? Clearly, this is in Scripture. So God thinks it has something to say to all of us. He either wants to tell us about the world that we still live in, even though he's rescued us from that world, or he's telling us that we're still part of that world. How do you know which is which? How do you know if he's talking to you, describing who you still are? If you're one of those who are denying the power of the gospel, even while people think that you have a godly appearance. How do you know? 
Well, you ask yourself. Ask yourself if you've experienced the things that the gospel gives to God's people. Ask, do I feel convicted by the Holy Spirit when I'm ungodly? If so, what is that? That's part of the gift of repentance that God gives. We talked about that last week in chapter 2, verse 25. Or ask yourself, when I feel convicted, how do I handle conviction? Do I turn to God? Do I make those things something that I talk to Him about? Or ask yourself, do I see growth in my godliness? Not, do I see perfection? But do I see this steady, incremental change over time? Am I handling my temptations better? Do I see more self-control? Is there concern about loving God more than concern about loving pleasure? Or ask, do I out myself? Do I ask for help, for counsel, for accountability? And then do I feel God's love? Do I feel more than just bad about myself? Do I sense God's love for me anyway, His delight in me? In short, do I sense a genuine connection with Him that gets expressed in my life so that over time, more and more, I look like Him? If so, then yes, this list used to describe me too, but it's no longer the most ultimate truth about me. Because when Jesus defeated the powers of darkness, He made it possible for me to escape being controlled by evil, brought me into a friendship with Himself. So this is still the reality of the world that I live in, but I'm no longer part of it like I used to be because my God has rescued me out of it, still at work in me to bring me all the way out of it. Those are some of the ways that you can tell if God is describing you as you are now or as you used to be. That's point one, the reality of the world that God sends his gospel into. Point two, as much as the world obviously needs what God is offering, there are people who oppose him. People who offer an alternative way to deal with the problems of humanity. People who are intentional, verse 6. They seek out vulnerable people, and then they undermine the gospel in those people's lives. And it gives us a sense of what those gospel underminers are like in verse 8. Just as Jonas and Jombers opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Now, if you page back through the life of Moses, you, you won't find anyone named Jonas or Jombers. But Jew Jewish tradition held that those were the names of two of Pharaoh's counselors that you do read about in Exodus chapter 7. There were magicians in Pharaoh's court who had mastered the occult. And they were there when Moses came and told Pharaoh that God said, let my people go, let the Israelites go, so that they could worship the Lord. And Pharaoh wanted a sign. He wanted a demonstration that Moses was really speaking for a deity, not just speaking for himself. So he asked for a sign, and Moses gave him the sign that God had given him. Aaron threw down his staff, and it became a serpent. And then Pharaoh's counselors imitated the sign. They threw down their staffs, which also became serpents, and so they undermined Pharaoh's confidence that this really was God speaking to him through Moses. God said he had to be listened to, that he was the one who was mo more powerful 
powerful enough to set his people free from slavery, stronger than any evil that held them, and Jonathan Jombers said no. There are other powers, other authorities, just as powerful that Pharaoh could listen to instead. And so they duplicated several of the wonders, staffs into serpents. They turned water into blood, made frogs come up out of the Nile. They opposed Moses, opposed the truth from God that Moses was bringing to them, that God was rescuing his people on his own initiative, based entirely on his power, and that he was to be obeyed. Jonathan Jombers opposed that, and Pharaoh hardened his heart against the word of God. Now, why does Paul use that as an illustration here? Because they were right there in Pharaoh's court. They got to hear the word of the Lord. They were learning, being taught what was really true. But they weren't able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Why? They relied on something else, some other authority as truth. And God is saying here that that opposition to his message of salvation his message of saving people from what enslaves them, that that opposition didn't end several thousand years ago, but that it still takes place, not only in the larger world, but it also filters into the church. That there are other things that we can listen to that will grab our attention and that will undermine our confidence in what God has said if we let them. What kind of things? Things like the latest Christian fad that just sweeps through the church. Things like how to hold a worship service or run a church ministry, even though those fads don't promote glorifying God or enjoying Him forever. They sweep through the church. Why? We assume automatically that what's new and current is always better than what's older. Or there are things like relying on experts and personalities. Whoever the current celebrity pastor is, hearing what they say, repeating those things without doing the hard work of checking those against Scripture, without doing what the Berean church did in Acts 17. They heard the Apostle Paul speak, but then they went back to Scripture to make sure that that's really what God said. Or we can substitute our own personal experience as authority above Scripture so that we interpret Scripture through our life experiences instead of interpreting our experiences through the light of Scripture. Or we can look to things like psychotherapeutic categories to define us, instead of asking how Scripture sees and understands who we are and the things we struggle with. Still plenty of alternatives to what God says in the modern world that filter into the church. Alternatives that we're all conditioned to listen to because of the world that we live in. A world that tells us, sure, that is what God says, but you don't need to listen to that because this other thing over here is even more true. So, again, another question. How do you know? How do you know who you're listening to? How do you know whether you're listening to God or to a modern-day Jonas or Jombers? Here's how. It's very simple. Listen very carefully to how you use the word but. It's a word that tells you what people really believe, what they functionally believe. It's a word that tells you what someone builds their life on when two different authorities clash. Listen to where you use it. Listen to where your friends use it. 
And what you'll hear people say is something like, well, there's this way of thinking, this way of approaching something, but there's this other way. And this other way that sits on the other side of the but, this other way is what's really important. Listen to where people use the word but and notice where they put Scripture whether they put it in front of the but so that whatever comes after it is the authority. Well, yes, Scripture says that, but the newest fad, the latest celebrity, my experience, my diagnosis says this. And this is now the real authority. Does Scripture go in front of the but and so it gets discounted? Or does it come afterwards so that it's the authority that's more weighty? So yes, the newest fad, the latest celebrity, my experience, my diagnosis says this, but God in his holy word says this. And so that's what I'm going to live my life by. Pay attention when you speak to whether you put scripture before or after the but. And it'll tell you what you think is most important. It'll tell you, what you what's your real authority. Let me give us an example that's really distant from us. Those, are, I think, are always easy. They, they, they help you see the truth of the principle, and then I'll try to bring it home a little closer. So first, the, the one that's distant. About 100 years or so, the big debate in the Christian church was over doctrine, over the historic doctrines of the church. And so people would say things like, I know the Bible teaches about miraculous things, like Jesus being born to a virgin, being raised from the dead. I know those things are in the Bible, but we live in a scientific age that tells us miracles don't happen. So we have to adjust the, what the Bible says to our modern belief in science. Do you hear where the authority lies in that kind of a statement? It's not in what God has to say that's true but in what this other authority, scientific understanding of the world says is true, and that's the real authority. And so people would acknowledge what Scripture said, but then try to adapt Scripture to fit in with their culture. For the historians among us, that was known as the fundamentalist modernist debate. And it impacted the whole church in the U.S., went across denominations in the early 1900s. You don't hear those debates so much anymore because the challenge to what God says has shifted. And that always happens. That's part of how evil works. It constantly changes the attack on what God has said. And so now the challenge is not centered as much around doctrine as it is around ethics. And so what you hear now is something more like, I know that Scripture says... That things like sex outside of marriage is wrong, that same-sex intimacy is wrong, but love is love. Love is based on what I feel inside myself. It's based on what you feel inside yourself, and that's more important, more, author more authoritative than what a book says that was written hundreds and thousands of years ago. And so the God that you read about there has no place for challenging our feelings, for challenging what we feel is right and good. I know what the Bible says, but my ethics are controlled by what I feel. And so as you look at the larger church now, you realize that many places in the modern church, the church is reshaping its ethics, adapting its ethics to match the ethical practices of the larger world. 
It's becoming very bold in doing that. I debated this for a while, but I think this is appropriate. About a week ago, a congresswoman who's part of a local church began her remarks at a prayer breakfast. She started by telling the people gathered there about something that had happened earlier in her home that morning. She's engaged to be married, and her fiancé apparently was there and had tried to pull her back into bed that morning while she was getting up. And she told him that she couldn't be intimate right then because it would make her late for the prayer breakfast and that she would see him later that night. And she told that anecdote as part of her opening remarks. Now she got some pushback for what she said, some criticism. And in response, she later tweeted, among other things, that I go to church because I'm a sinner, not a saint. Now what is that? That's very bold. What is that? It's not a confession. It's not a call for help. That's not someone under conviction of their sin longing to be set free. That's a proud statement, a boastful statement, a last day's statement that loving pleasure is better than loving God and that that's okay. It's both a proclamation of ethics that are at odds with what God has said and it's a defense of those ethics even though she knows that they don't agree with what God has said. I'm a sinner. I know what's true. I know that Scripture would say this is sin, but I'm okay with that because I'm not a saint. I go to church. What is that? It's a form of godliness without the power. I know what the Bible says, but I do religious things. I go to church. I go to prayer breakfasts. My ethics are not traditional Christian, but I'm okay with that. And I can say that out loud in public and expect that you will be okay with that too. Pay attention to what people say, and you will hear a lot of voices trying to undermine your confidence in what God has said. A lot of voices trying to make sin sound normal, like it's no big deal like older ethics are for older times and that the church has to adapt to modern ethics for modern times. Don't let yourself believe that. Because the modern challenges to God's voice will end up just like all the other challenges ever have. They end with verse 9, with their folly being plain to all. See, there was a time back in Exodus when Moses was before Pharaoh, Exodus 8, 8 19, that Jonathan Jombers couldn't imitate a sign that Moses performed. And they had to admit to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Their ability to challenge God ran out. Their foolishness in trying to challenge him became plain to themselves, became plain to everyone else. It became really plain when what God had said came true, when the Israelites walked out of Egypt. Because God did what he said he was going to do. He rescued his people, despite everything that these two had done to oppose him. That's going to be the case with the current ethical challenges as well. God's word will be seen to be true. And all of the challengers to it will what? They'll either repent or their folly will be evident to all. And yet, for now, for a time, point two, God allows people to publicly oppose the gospel that he offers in these last days. 
So point three, very, very, very quick. How do you not get taken in by these people? That's the whole point of the warning, right? Verse five, it's to avoid these kind of gospel-undermining people who have an appearance of godliness but deny its power. And it just seems obvious that you would avoid them. But Paul says there are some people who can't. Some people who these gospel underminers target. Verse 6, they creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Now, if you read Paul's letters, you realize that he thinks highly of women, including women who are strong theological thinkers who he's worked alongside of. And so he is not making a blanket statement here about women in general. Instead, he's talking about a particular kind of woman, and it looks like he's describing facts on the ground. He's describing things that he's observed, that there are men, men whose minds are corrupted as far as the faith is concerned, men who are putting themselves forward as Christian teachers who are targeting households, and they're getting a hearing and there are certain characteristics that would make you vulnerable to what they're saying. People listen to an alternative solution to the problems of humanity. They will listen to an alternative gospel when two things are true, when they are burdened by sin and led astray by various passions, when they still feel guilty about stuff from the past, and when they have no power, no self-control over their temptations. No experience of seeing godliness grow inside, of seeing themselves become more godly. When that's the case, they're primed to listen to something else because they haven't done the work of applying the gospel to themselves. They've heard the gospel, that Jesus died for their sins, but they haven't experienced that feeling of being forgiven. They haven't experienced knowing that God loves them, feeling that kind of love. They haven't seen God's power at work in them changing them. But instead of turning to him for help, of asking him for the gift of being able to repent, asking him to give them faith to believe, meditating on the cross, coming to sense how great his love is for them, instead of returning, going back to the gospel, pressing into God, believing there is no other way that we can be saved from the evil inside of us, instead of that, they look around and they say, that's stuff I've heard before, that's old. What's the new stuff? I've still got this problem. Is there anything else that might help? And that looking for something else keeps them, verse 7, always learning, always interested in hearing something new, but never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth because they're looking for some other way to deal with the guilt and the temptation that they see in their lives. They're looking for something else to make everything in their life okay rather than relying on Christ as you find him in the gospel. And here's the sad reality. If you will not live out your faith, if you will not practice applying the gospel to yourself, living out of a sense of God's love for you, you set yourself up to push God's word aside and you set yourself up to listen to anyone who promises you some other way to deal with all that junk that you see inside. And here's the good news. 
even if you've drifted and gotten caught up in all kinds of things that have nothing to do with the gospel, the good news is that it's still possible to rely on the gospel. That's why this warning is here. If you see yourself in this passage this morning, it doesn't have to end here. Because that's also something that God has built into the gospel. Something that's been true going all the way back to when God first rescued his people from Pharaoh. If you go back to the book of Exodus, here I'm going to lean heavily on Tim Keller. In the book of Exodus, you find three big themes. First, you see Moses confronting Pharaoh, but that's only the first beginning of the book, the first part that tells you, here's how much God loves his people. He loves them so much he rescues them from slavery, and that points forward to how he's going to rescue you from being controlled by all those traits you find in 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's the first part. The second part tells you how to love him in return. God gives his law to tell his people the kind of life that they need to live in order to be in a good relationship with him how to live a different life now that you're not controlled by those traits that you find in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Law does not make people good enough for God. God already loved them before he gave the law. What's the law do? It tells you how to be friends with God. And the book doesn't end there. There's a full third section of the book that tells you you can't even do that on your own. <laughs> you can't be friends with him on your own. You can't escape these traits on your own third part of the book of Exodus talks about the tabernacle, the place where you would meet with God, and it tells you in order to do that, you need a priest and a sacrifice. After being saved by grace, you still need a priest and a sacrifice because on your own, you'll never live out the law. On your own, you can never live a life that's pleasing to God. You're just not good enough even after you've received grace to be friends with God. But God wants a friendship with you. And so if you lived at that time and you wanted to meet with God, you would need a lamb after you'd been brought into a friendship with God. A lamb that was just like the one that you needed earlier when God sent his angel of death over Egypt and when that lamb allowed that angel to pass over you. You needed a lamb just like the Passover lamb, one that would die in your place so that you could start a relationship with God. But you would also need a lamb when you went to the tabernacle to continue your relationship with God. A lamb that would point forward to Christ. That's why John the Baptist pointed Jesus out to his disciples and said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is how you start a friendship with God. He's how you continue being friends with God. You don't just need Jesus to save you from sin. You need Jesus so that you can live free from sin. That's not a surprise to Jesus. It's what he offers you. It's what he made possible for you. So when you don't feel forgiven, when you feel powerless to deal with your temptations, when it seems like, oh, I, I just have an appearance of godliness, I don't have any power, don't go looking for an alternative, some new thing to try, some new way to think. Go back to Jesus. Receive his love, his forgiveness. Ask him for his power to live this new life. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. Let me ask you, take a few moments now. Go to him. Talk with him about what you need so that you can receive that from him.
we have no hope apart from you. But Lord, you didn't leave us hopeless. You came, you rescued, and you didn't leave. You put your spirit in us. You continue to speak your word to us. Lord, we are so grateful. Thank you for your sacrifice, your once-for-all sacrifice, that you as our high priest offered to the Father on our behalf. Thank you that you bring priest and sacrifice together and that we can now come boldly to you, asking for grace in our time of need, confident, Lord, that you'll give it to us. Thank you. And Lord, let us sense you as we eat now and gain a sense of, of just how much you do love us.